Thank you, Eli. What a blessing. This is my story. This is my song, Praising My Savior, all the day long. I love that reminder. Thank you, Van, for playing. Thank you, Alex, for putting together music that helped us focus on our master. Appreciative of that as we try to really have this part of the service be a way that we continue to worship uninterrupted. So I hope that was a blessing to you and encouragement to you as well. You can open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For all those who'd like to be dismissed to junior church for an age-appropriate service up through grade four, you can dismiss your children there, or you can keep them with you. It's perfectly fine to have them here. We are a family church and enjoy having your little ones here with us and with you. Reserve our time together, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy with you, you can find one in the seat in front of you. I'll be reading from the New American Standard, and that's what you can find there, or take your copy and we'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together. If you're new with us today, this is our sixth topic as we have worked our way verse by verse through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. It's our sixth and our first topic where Paul begins to address uh, with the Corinthians more at length actual conduct within church meetings. Paul has uh, spent much time as he's talked about different uh, problems that have plagued the Corinthian church, but here he is going to really bring his focus on actual conduct. And the general topic of uh, church conduct will extend all the way through chapter 14. So we're going to be in it a while. We saw a little bit of it in chapter 5 as Paul addressed the church and what to do with immorality inside the church. But here it really becomes his focus. And as we've seen already, the Lord wants a healthy church. His desire is for it to flourish. The Apostle Paul was carried along by the Holy Spirit to address some errors in the church at Corinth. And through Paul's direction, churches from every century, every background, have had the benefit of this instruction from a preventative standpoint or a curative standpoint, whatever the case may be. From chapter 1 verse 10, all the way through chapter 16, verse 9, Paul addresses problems, inhibiting then the good health of the church. And some of them were pretty bad. For example, in the first section from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through chapter 4, verse 2, unity, there is his topic, because he had to deal with errors regarding division, and faction, and backbiting, and gossip, and complaining, and all those which deal a death blow to unity. And then we moved on to chapter 5, verse 1, to the end of the chapter, his topic was purity. So, he had to deal with errors regarding immorality inside the membership and what to do in those instances. And from chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through verse 11, Paul wanted to deal with testimony. So he had to deal with errors regarding conflict resolution and, and taking other believers to court and what that looked like in front of the unsaved world. And so Paul had to deal with that inside uh, the Corinthian body. And so then from chapter 6, verse 12, through the end of chapter 7, he deals with, with the body itself and singleness, and he dealt with marriage and errors in the church regarding immorality and marriage and divorce. And then from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10, verse 33, a section we've just finished, he had to deal with errors regarding Christian liberty and how that had to be approached inside the body. Now from chapter 11, verse 1, which is new for us today, uh, all the way to the end of chapter 14, he deals with conduct in the church. Actually what's going on or should be going on when they actually meet together for worship. Now, under that heading, in chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through verse 16, which is the section we're going to look at initially today, uh, Paul is going to deal with authority and errors regarding men's and women's roles in the church, from which really snuck in, I think, in relation to and reflection of the culture there in Corinth. From chapter, se or from chapter 11, verse 17, through the end of that chapter, he's going to deal with communion 
and he's going to deal with some errors that uh, had snuck in regarding the Lord's table. And then in chapter 12 through chapter 14, he's going to deal with spiritual giftedness, and he takes a good bit of time there as he deals with the gifts the Holy Spirit has given to the church, and so he has to deal with errors regarding the use of spiritual gifts inside the meeting together. And so as we see, this same topic goes all the way through chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, he wants to see the church, uh, see the, really the reality of their faith, and so Paul has to deal with errors regarding the resurrection and Christ's life and his death and some clarification as, as regards all of those things. And then in chapter 16, he desires, uh, the Holy Spirit desires through Paul to see the church be generous with material things, and so he has to confront errors regarding money. And that really is a snapshot, if you will, and there are lots of little topics that get dealt with as Paul works his way in letter form, as you may well imagine, as he talks to the church by letter, as he responds to both reports from Chloe and from letters from the church itself, uh, Paul addresses those things and many other things that get to be uh, connected to those topics. Now let's read our passage together, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. It'll be our introductory time today, and I think that you'll find it's really needed as we go through uh, this passage particularly. But look at chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through uh, verse 16. It starts, be imitators. So that's where we are. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ, verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of woman, of a woman and God is the head of Christ, verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Verse 8. For a man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Verse 9, for indeed man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Verse 10, therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 11, however, in the Lord there is, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Verse 12, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for covering. Verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's stop right there. Now, as we finished reading that, if you're thinking... This may be a little uncomfortable for Kurt to teach. You've struck the chord, of course, that has resonated in my own heart over these last few weeks as we've been approaching this passage. This, again, as we do from time to time, as I say from time to time, is one of those difficult passages to teach through. It's not because it is complex, necessarily. It's not because it's hard to form the words that need to go and help us get the sense of it. It's just the wording and ideas are foreign to our modern culture. And even our culture in the church, with political correctness becoming really the norm for both. 
it's hard to teach through because there has been much misuse of the passage and other passages connected to this one, and so sometimes the whole thing gets dismissed as irrelevant. And the modern church has embraced the opposite of much of this teaching, and that opposite is now considered the standard. So those reasons can make the passage difficult to present because it concerns the role of women in the church. And again, this is a passage I wouldn't choose to speak about if I were a topical teacher. But I'm not. And I know that there is a risk of someone who is new with us this morning misinterpreting what will be said here and thinking that perhaps we're a legalistic church that denigrates women, but nothing could be further from the truth. And I think if you ask around, you'll find that to be the case. We went, though, verse by verse through every chapter of 1 Corinthians up until now, and now we've arrived at chapter 11. And the Lord has his reasons for chapters arriving when they do, and so I just leave that to the Holy Spirit to do what he will with them. And so we're going to go verse by verse through chapter 11, and we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture, just like we always do, and ask the same questions that we always ask. What does the passage say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to us today? And so I wrestled with this passage this week, and when I say wrestling, that is an understatement, as I desire to really present this in such a way that first we could grasp the, under, the, the context of the passage and then make some application. Now, the question always comes up with this passage and some others that are connected to it, which we'll look at. Isn't Paul's instruction here just cultural? It's just cultural. It's just what happened back in Corinth, and you know, it really has no application to us today. But I would say to you that that really is a question that must come up with every passage of the Bible. There isn't any passage in the Bible that we don't have to ask the question, what is the cultural context of this passage? And certainly I think we will see some portions of each passage we examine as cultural every time we go through the passages. And we looked, in particular, as we looked at chapter 10, I want to draw your attention to meat offered to idols. That's not something that is a regular uh, experience that modern church uh, members have to experience. However, we were able to see, as we even dealt with the uh, cultural connection there with Paul, inside that cultural teaching, we were able to glean some universal principles that the Holy Spirit wants the church to follow. And the same will be true here. Now let's look at a portion of our passage this morning and then we can make some initial observations in this introductory time uh, this morning. So look at verse 1, verse 1 if you would, of chapter 11. Paul says this, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Now some commentators make the argument that this verse goes better with the previous chapter and perhaps even your outline in whatever Bible you have may show that verse, even though there's a new chapter indication, may show that verse connected with the previous chapter and not with the current one. The previous chapter comes to an end with Paul saying, look just back there at verse 32, give no offense either to Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God, verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. So, Paul may have well been intending to end this topic that we just finished, this uh, Freedom in Christ topic, uh, with this is what I do. I do my best not to offend anyone. I do my best to please all men. Um, I don't serve myself with my own life. All those things that we talked about. Uh, but everyone else comes before me. That's Paul's desire. That's Paul's putting his own freedom aside. And I do all that so that uh, these others may come to know Christ as Savior. And in these respects and everything else, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So that certainly goes together. You can certainly make a case for that. Um, the passage makes sense. I follow Christ in these things. This is the mind of Christ. So you follow me, and we can certainly take it that way and be faithful to the passage. 
Or, uh, Paul could start his next thought with this reminder. He could say this, as we see actually indicated here. uh, Verse 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And then follow up that comment by saying, now I praise you because you really do remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In other words, Paul says, I taught you for 18 months and you really are trying to imitate me, which is what you should be doing. Uh, I follow Christ. This is the mind of Christ. So continue to follow me. And then verse three says, but I want you to understand. So Paul says, hey, be imitators of me uh, just as uh, I am of Christ. And I praise you because you really do imitate me. Now, in other words, there is a problem, verse three, Uh, And I want to go over it with you again so I can indeed uh, have you follow Christ in this manner just as I follow Christ. And of course, there were no chapter breaks when Paul penned the letter, but it really matters very little. It's the same meaning is conveyed. The transition is accomplished. And for what it's worth, beloved, uh, I think this is the correct way to look at it, mainly because uh, the word imitators are, uh, the word imitator in verse 1 is the noun form of of the word remember in verse 2. And so I think Paul is connecting these two very, very realistically for them. Uh, these words are where we get our English word mimic. So in other words, it would say this. Be mimics of me just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you mimic me in everything. And so that, that thought goes together. And I think that's how the translators and, and those who, who divided up the scripture had what that's what they had in mind. And so I think that those are together. I don't think it matters uh, a huge amount whether or not you end the previous passage with this or you start the next one with it. You still get the same transition, but I think that's the way to look at it. Now, look at verse 2, if you would. Paul says this, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. Now, Paul starts with a phrase, I commend you. So he's starting with praise. And that's a good thing, particularly if you're going to have to bring them to task about something. And if you're a teacher, you probably learned that early on in your education classes that, you know, you want to make contact with the parents early on in the semester so that when some of the students start getting Fs, it's not the first time you've talked to a parent and say your student is stinking up this class. So you want to say, hey, we love your student. It's great to be with them. And then uh, later you have to talk to them about something that is difficult. So Paul starts the same way. I praise you. I commend you. And now that word tradition simply refers to the body of teaching that Paul passed on to the church in his time with them. Uh, the scripture sometimes uses this word, traditions, in a negative manner uh, and uh, in a negative sense, referring to man-made laws and, and preferences and, and legalism that supersede the scripture, like Mark 7, verse 6, he would use the same word and he would say this, and he said to them, Jesus speaking, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to, here it is, the tradition of men. Verse 9, he also saying to them, you were experts at setting aside the commandment of the God in order to keep your tradition. There it is. It's used in a very negative sense there. The tradition, in other words, would be what had superseded the, the word of God for the Jews. They had a whole bunch of laws and a whole bunch of legalism, a whole bunch of preferences. This is what you have to do to be holy. This is what you have to do to wash your hands. This is what you have to do. All these things made their way in, superseded what the Lord had said. And Jesus is coming and he just, uh, he uh, brings them to task about this. So tradition there is used in an undesirable way. But here in verse 2, as Paul uses it, it appears to be used in the strict sense of the word because Paul is commending them for holding on to the teaching he's given them. And he spent 18 months with them. And so he says, listen, you are mimicking me uh, just as I mimic Christ. He's not talking about personal preferences. He's not talking about any of that, especially on the heels of the whole freedom in Christ uh, passage that he's just got through talking about. Now, just to confirm that, he says that they 
the traditions were delivered at a past time during his time of planting, establishing the church. So we understand we delivered those traditions to you in the past. You live by them now. Now, whether they had become forgetful hearers, as we saw uh, in chapter 3, or maybe they were infants in Christ uh, back when he was pastoring them and they were not able to handle his teaching, verse ch chapter 3 says, they were babes then, they're still babes now. Whatever the case may be, Paul's going to have to deliver, address an issue that is part of the body of teaching for every believer, part of the strict, in the strictest sense, what the word has to say. And it has to do with the role of women in the church and the authority and submission that comes along with that. And although he will address clothing, dress is not the tradition that he has in mind. And I'll show you why that's the case as we work our way through. Now, how Paul found out that there was a problem here is probably the same way he found out he had to address marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage and all that in chapter 7, because it was part of a letter to him. In chapter 7, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now concerning the things which you wrote, and perhaps that continues all the way till now. Paul just continues to go through the topics that were presented to him by letter, and he's going to take on this one. Somebody's, someone or somebody's are in the church, they're seeing what's going on, they're saying, hey, you know, there's some questions here about what's going on, will you answer those for me, Paul? And so that's likely the case. Uh, now, before chapter 7, it's likely that everything he commented on came to him as a result of Chloe's people. So Chloe's people somehow had communicated to Paul, had brought a, uh, a, uh, a report to Paul in chapter 1, verse 11, and so Paul commented all the way up to, and into chap in chapter 7. He says, I got a letter from you. Let me talk about what you wrote. So it's likely it's coming as a report from a letter. Um, so let's look at verse 3 and then comment on that, if you would. <clears throat> Paul says this, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, as you look at chapter 3, you need to understand, this really unlocks these 16 verses for us. This passage right here, and the way that it is expressed, really helps open up for us an understanding of what we're about to see in the next 14, 12 verses or so. Paul lays down a model of authority and submission. And very importantly, he lays down this model of authority and submission because it includes two of the three persons in the Trinity so that it has no negative connotation. And I think that's very important to realize that as it falls in the middle, the first one you see and the last one you see neither have negative connotations, so the middle one doesn't either. And I'll, I'll let you see that, kind of shore that up for you. And Paul, what's gonna, what Paul's going to do here is going to give some instructions governing a local issue. But in doing that, just like as we work our way through the other parts of, of 1 Corinthians, he's going to lay down an authority and submission model. And this is the tradition he's speaking of as he talks about, you have followed me in these things, but. And this is the thing that's the but. Uh, the Paul, Paul then will really identify six basic points then as he illustrates that model of, of authority and submission that govern the conduct in the church. Now it kind of gives you an overview of where we're going to go so you can hang uh, some handholds so you can grab them. So look at that, let's look at the, middle, the model of authority and submission that Paul lays out. Verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of woman, of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Paul says, I need you to understand this. There, and that's why he says, I want you to understand. This is common knowledge. You need to understand this issue. This is something you need to incorporate in the way you think. There is authority and submission everywhere. God set it up that way. First one, he says, Christ is the head of every man. Now that word head is kephale. It is the Greek word for the biological head. It's going to be used that way later, and we'll also see where wearing something on it is a sign of authority. 
But here, as you can see, it's just obvious, it's being used as a metaphor. Obviously, Christ is not the physical skull and brain of a man. Okay, so obviously it's used in a metaphorical sense. Christ is the head of every man. And, and that is just obvious. It just means authority or ruler. So in that case, as Paul uses it metaphorically, he's just, it's the ruler, it's the authority, it's what governs the conduct, just like your physical head does for your body. So, I want you to recognize here that it's not just referring to the church, okay? So it's not limited only Christ is the head of every man. So don't think, okay, he's over the church, because that's not the limit to Paul's approach here. Christ is the head of the church. We certainly see that very clearly. But he rules nonetheless. He rules every man. And just to confirm that in your mind, some men are obedient, and those are believers, and that's the church, and he rules over them. And some men don't acknowledge his rule, and they're the world, but he rules over them still. And just as a footnote, he's going to bring the unruly under judgment someday, and his judgment will stand because he has the authority to bring it. And he's going to cast those who would not submit to his rule into the lake of fire. Why? Because he has the authority to do it, because he rules over men, not just the church. And he's going to bring the ruled, that's the church, under the Bema Seat judgment to declare how well they submitted to his rule and to reward their obedience. And once again, why is he going to do that? Because he has the authority, because Christ is the head of every man. So they all fall under his authority. So Christ is the head of every man. Now the next thing that Paul would have them know is, the, and the man, it says, is the head of a woman. That's obviously the place where they're having some trouble, which is why Paul brings it up. And Paul's first point really concerns conduct within the church, which is Paul's topic here in this passage. It concerns the relationship at home. Point one, it's the plan God has set up. Paul says it follows a pattern. It, in the relationship between Christ and man, there is an authority and submission. In the relationship between men and women, there is authority and submission. And the last part of the verse, Paul says, in the relationship between Christ and God, there is authority and submission. So he says, and man is the head of a woman. And this is not new teaching from Paul to believers in the New Testament. Paul's focus is on the conduct of the church. The man must recognize that God has given him authority, and he has to accept that and lead. And the woman must recognize and realize that her relationship at home and in her relationship in the church has been given a place of submission. That's simply Paul's clearly expressed understanding of the traditions that are to be understood inside the church. It's a simple statement by Paul. It isn't intended to inflame or to bring up a whole bunch of objections, although it undoubtedly does and did there, probably, no doubt, because Paul had to bring it up to the church. It was a problem inside the church. And undoubtedly, it inflames now. He wants to make sure they know what they need to know. This is part of the traditions he's speaking about. This isn't wrong. It's just the way God has made it. This is the way he designed it. But I will say, as a footnote, as it strikes our ear, I know that it creates some very strong responses, perhaps already in your own heart. It has created one way or another responses in, uh, as, a, as you look at that passage. And it no doubt created similar responses in the first century. So... In order to help moderate that, he sandwiches that very important statement, that tradition he wants to make sure they understand, the one that they're having trouble with, and the focus of his teaching between the first one, Christ is the head of every man, and the last one, and God is the head of Christ. So if it's really going to displease them in Corinth to hear this, which undoubtedly it will displease some, 
And if it's really going to displease the modern church to receive this teaching about the man and the woman, then they're going to have to pause and think about the fact that there's no inferiority in the first one or the last one. Christ willingly submitted himself to the Father. He came to do the Father's will. He did the Father's will. He submitted to him and everything. We see that over and over in the New Testament. See, he isn't talking about inferiority and superiority. It's simply talking about roles. Christ is the head of every man, and yet believers are co-heirs with him, aren't they? God is the head of Christ, and yet Jesus and the Father are one. See? And right in between both of those foundational theological premises that must be true is the other one that also is true. Now let's look briefly at verses 4 through 7, because this is really where we get into the crux of Paul's teaching here in Corinth. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Verse 5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Verse 6, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Let's stop right there. Now the passage as you read it appears complex, but it really isn't. We obviously have a pattern of behavior going on in the church concerning what's being worn to worship services. That's Paul's focus. Remember, as we move into chapter 11, we're moving into conduct inside the local church. What's going on in the worship services? Paul is going to bring this uh, to their attention. Now, obviously what's being worn and a pattern of behavior going on in this church concerning what's being worn to the worship services uh, is what Paul is bringing to their attention. But that by itself is not the main issue. Okay, and that's what I want you to help you see today. Paul uses this local custom to illustrate the main problem. The main problem appears to be the attitude of those involved. If we remember Paul's key statement, when we can understand that his, he is addressing uh, this issue, is to point out the problem with conduct in the church, of which this manifestation, then, of dress was only a symptom. Keep that in mind. What it amounted to was this. In the society in Corinth, women who were proper, women who were modest, women who wanted to make a statement publicly and visibly about their submission to their husbands, their submission in the church, submitting to the role that was assigned to them in their society, uh, wore a head covering as a symbol of that submission. And the symbol there at that time was to be veiled. And there are a number of, of uh, pictures from that time period just show a shawl or, or a head covering, a veil, if you would, over the head of a woman. Now, there doesn't appear to be any historical consistency concerning head coverings in Greek or Roman fashion. It went in and out. Remember, dress is very cultural, okay? It's part of the freedom that we have in Christ, to dress as we wish. But what is proper in one place is not necessarily proper in another place. It's very, it, it coincides very well with what we just learned out of chapter 10, where we understand that our freedom can be limited by what the culture expects from a Christian. And we have to understand what that is. And so this goes perfectly with that. What's proper here within the fellowship of the Corinthian church was that a woman who submitted to their role in the church indicated that by what they wore. And Paul's point here is that women should conform in matters of dress to that which society says is the mark of a modest, submissive woman. Now, that's just obvious, okay? And whatever culture you live in, whatever era it is, that still holds true. But Paul doesn't mention this, so we don't want to suppose uh, somehow, if we think, well, 
Obviously, the reason he, he has to bring this up is there appears to be a group of women who are, who are or have thrown off this teaching of submission. So what's going on in the church is you have a few women who are no longer doing this, okay? Uh, the common practice there in Corinth was, as a woman was in the church, she covered herself as she was worshiping, okay? And some have thrown off this teaching, which is just why Paul brings it to bear. Perhaps the background is the Roman feminist movement, where you know, women of Roman culture would shave their heads, dress as men. Perhaps that made its way in the church. We don't know. Paul doesn't actually mention that specifically, so we don't want to suppose that's the case. The problem in the Corinthian church was that some women had decided to dispense with the head covering during worship in order to make a statement. And so Paul is addressing that very issue. And Paul's emphasis is that it shouldn't be done. That what is common practice for this Corinthian church needs to continue. He doesn't appear to be making a universal statement on women's wearing head coverings during worship. And I think we can, we'll see this in just a minute. But he will make a universal statement on what the head covering indicated and what some of these women were throwing off and no longer wish to be associated with. That's the issue, okay? And that was submission to men. Now look at verse 4. We'll go back and just kind of go verse by verse through this passage right here you will. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. All right. Two meanings for head right here in this verse. Let's look at them because it clarifies our understanding. Every man who has something on his head, that's physical head, okay, actual uh, what you have on top of your shoulders, while praying or prophesies disgraces his head. And there's the metaphorical sense for head. Again, because who's the, head of, who's the head of men? Christ. That's what Paul said. Remember, that's the key to understanding this. Christ is the head of men, so if a man has something on his head while he's praying or prophesying, he disgraces his head. That's the metaphorical head for Christ. Again, this appears to have become the custom of the time. Jews beginning uh, in about the 4th century began doing this as well, wearing uh, something on their head while they were praying. Right here in Corinth, the convention was that women wear a head covering and men do not, but the style had begun to change. But because of the impact that was having on the situation during the worship time, Paul made a clear statement. He says he's addressing an attitude of unsubmissiveness in Corinth, so he had to address the style change. Now look at verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with a woman whose head is shaved. All right, again, Paul's point is clear. We're just following the same pattern. you got two meanings for head, don't you? But every woman who has her head uncovered, that's a physical head, while praying or prophesying disgraces her metaphorical head. And who is her metaphorical head? The man. Okay? Christ is the head of every woman. Man is the head. Uh, Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of a woman. Okay? For a woman who does not cover her head, let her head, uh, look at verse 6, if you would. For a woman who does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, there all physical meanings for the word head. For a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. So obviously speaking about the physical head of a woman. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, that word disgraceful is important. I want to point it out because we're going to see it a number of times. Greek adjective, ikros for the feeling of fear or shame which prevents a person from doing something. So he's appealing to that natural phenomenon for a woman to have her hair shaved off. In most cultures, women wear hair, uh, their hair longer than men do. It is the beauty of a woman to have hair. Uh, the Lord has given that as part of that beauty. And so Paul says, listen, you understand this. 
uh, and that is Paul's second point. This is the internal witness that God provides. There is this natural covering that God has given. There's a conscience-bearing witness here. Paul says, you know what I'm saying is true in your own heart, and the same is true regarding submission and the change of heart that's been occurring in the Corinth. You need to know that this is something that should trigger your own conscience. You should know that what's going on here isn't right. Now, Paul's getting here to the main issue of the entire passage. It really isn't the direct point on whether or not the men in Corinth had departed from tradition and now were wearing head coverings, because we know the Jews did that in the 4th century. That isn't Paul's main concern, okay? In Greco-Roman culture, men were originally short-haired, presumably uncovered, and the women long-haired, but with their hair arranged in some way and covered, sometimes covered, sometimes not, sometimes braided, sometimes with jewelry. There was all kinds of different cultural variations, all kinds of different fashion variations. Paul isn't addressing any of them here, okay? The problem was not what was going on on the outside by way of fashion, okay? Fashions come and go. Peter said, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold, jewelry, or putting on dresses. Not merely that, he says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, women who had also hoped in God used to adore themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Now, I want to draw your attention to something here. Here was the perfect time for Peter to say, and by the way, make sure you wear a head covering. Did he say it? He did not. Why? Because that wasn't the issue Peter was talking about, was it? It was the internal, what's going on in the heart. And so, that's how it's always been done, Peter says. Godly women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves in that way, being submissive to their own husbands. It wasn't about not wearing certain head coverings. It wasn't about... You know, don't you know, dress yourself up, don't dress beautifully, don't make your hair gorgeous. He didn't forbid any of those things. He didn't say, and by the way, when you're in the worship service, make sure you throw a shawl on. He just said, listen, this is the way, this is the attitude of godly women of old, okay? But obviously, here in Corinth, the way they were dressing was making a statement about their relationship to their husbands and their relationship to the church and its functions. That's the issue for Paul. A woman could be saying, you know, I'm praying, I'm prophesying in my own right, I'm not under my husband, nothing stops me from doing what I want to do in the church, I'm gonna, and I'm going to indicate that by I'm no longer going to wear here in Corinth, I'm not going to cover my head anymore because I don't think that that's how it should be. It was just a statement by some women in the church, and Paul says that attitude ought not to be. Now, that we have a foundation to the beginning of understanding this passage, that Paul's dealing with an attitude which was indicated by a head covering for women, and, by, and indicated by no head covering for men here in Corinth. Now that you understand he's dealing with an attitude of unsubmissiveness and all those types of things, I want to illustrate this a number of places because I think this will help kind of shore up this general understanding. As we saw in Peter where he didn't mention, didn't mention a shawl, we're going to see this in a number of other places because there's some passages that help us understand this authority and submission aspect of ministry and the roles men and women have in the church. Now, it's a very popular concept today in the modern church of the proliferation of women pastors and women elders, okay? And I think that's important uh, to understand that uh, we're going to see some very clear teaching here. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Now, we're going to get there, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see this passage because it's indicative of, it's still inside chapter 14, so it's indicative of what's going on in the worship service. Paul gets very specific here, so you understand I'm not kind of out there on a limb and I'm about to cut myself off, all right? Where are you going with this, Parker? Well, here's where we're going with it. I need you to understand this, okay? Now, this topic is prophecy in the service. 
as you read chapter 14, realize uh, people were foretelling or uttering forth. Uh, that's teaching and refuting and reproving and admonishing and comforting others. It's part of what an elder does. There were, that was going on in the church. We call that preaching today. Uh, it is part of what we do inside uh, the church as we meet together. But this is the topic that Paul's bringing to the church, uh, and he wants to bring the church to order in this whole thing. And there were a number of men doing this in the church. They were obviously all trying to be heard at the same time. So Paul lays down some guidelines, and then in the same breath he says this. Look at verse 34. He says this. Now, so this is the topic of prophesying, of teaching inside the church. Okay? Verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to be subject themselves, just as the law also says. Verse 35. But if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. So verse 5 of 1 Corinthians talks about a woman praying and prophesying, doesn't it? If you're praying and prophesying with your head uncovered, you dishonor your head. So a woman obviously can pray and prophesy. That's the, first, uh, that's the first objection that I hear to my ear. Well, Paul said women are praying and prophesying. Well, we understand something very clearly from this passage right here. If women are praying and prophesying, where are they not doing it? Beloved, they're not doing it in the open worship service, are they? Otherwise, Paul would con contradict himself two chapters later, wouldn't he? So obviously it goes on, and it should go on. Women's ministry should be involved in the church, but it isn't going on in the open worship service. So as it relates to the worship service then, Paul's pretty clear. Even with questions they may have, what does Paul tell them not to do? Women are not to take the role of ruling the church, right? Now, here's the thing. Does that mean that they don't have the ability or intellect to rule the church? Absolutely not. Does that mean that they aren't gifted to do it? Of course it doesn't mean that. They're gifted. But when the church has come together to worship, like we're doing now, does it appear that a woman is supposed to take a leadership role and exercise authority over a man? I mean, you can't really come away with any other understanding, can you? No. And in case someone says, well, that's just cultural, which is the first knee-jerk response, look at verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. In other words, that's what we hear a lot, see, with churches that embrace women who are elders, which is, hey, I'm just going to do what the Holy Spirit tells me to do, and I don't care what anybody thinks about it. That's precisely the attitude that Paul takes to task right here. Was it from you the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or thinks they're spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. So in other words, everything he just got through saying, starting in verse 34 all the way through verse 36, Paul says you need to take heed of this. It's not just up to you, whatever you want to do. This is the authority and submission that goes on inside the church. Now, does that mean that she can't teach other women or children or serve as deaconesses? Of course not. She can serve in all the places the Lord has designed for her to serve. And that doesn't mean that a woman can't get up and give a testimony or make an announcement or something like that. That's not the issue, okay? But women are not to take the role of ruling the church or being teachers of men inside the church. That's Paul's guidelines for us. That's Peter's guidelines for us. And if they need to know anything, are they supposed to ask out, outright? No. 
let them learn by asking their husband. And as a footnote, which means, men, you're going to need to know the answer. Okay? If she's going to be all that God plans for her to be. Because there are some brilliant, talented, gifted women in the church. And they have some questions. And you need to have the answers. Which means you need to know what the Word of God says. Which is, obviously, your job, isn't it? Just to point out quickly, we just saw just a second ago, Paul says this in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 14. He says, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Guess what word that is? The exact same word Paul used in chapter 11. Disgraceful. Icros. Verse 6, chapter 11. It's improper for a woman to speak in church. And it's dealing with the same problem in the church of authority and submission. And just so you see it isn't isolated with Paul, we looked at part of this verse just a moment ago. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, so even if you have a husband that really doesn't walk closely with the Lord or even may not know the Lord, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So in the same way, in the same way as what? Well, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, in the same way as Christ submitted himself in the same way as we are to submit to Christ, in the same way, submit to your husband. Biblical teaching concerning the role of women in the church, here it is. The biblical teaching of concerning the role of women in church setting and those that are given for the home are connected. I just want you to see that. Very same language, same understanding. And then to keep all this in proper balance, Peter says this. And in case you know, someone says, you know, that's just cultural, look at verse 7, chapter 3. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. So in case you think it's cultural, I want you to understand that actually this is the situation. You're living, husbands, with someone who is weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Speaking of marriage, we've looked at that passage before so that your prayers will not be hindered. In the same way as what? In the same way as Christ submitted himself, in the same way we are to submit to Christ, in that same way, husbands, submit yourself with that loving authority over your wife, Dwell with her in an understanding way as with someone weaker, because that is the situation, Paul, uh, Peter says. In the same way, husbands, live with your wives with understanding. She doesn't have to have the same roles as you do, and she doesn't have the same roles as you do. She shouldn't have to be hard. She shouldn't have to be the one who handles everything because she's someone who is weaker. You should be doing that. And honor her for the role she has. And if you want your prayers to go any higher than the ceiling, you better learn how to do this, Peter says to the men. There are lots of places we can go with this, but just this last one I want you to see before we begin to wrap up for today. It relates really back to where we are in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and through 16. So I want you to see this because it's a very similar language. As Paul is talking to Timothy in verse 9, he says this, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, verse 10, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, I want you to catch this, okay? Paul says to Timothy, in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is at this time, there may be some women who want to throw off their submission and draw attention to themselves. Likely that's the case, because that's the reason why Paul brings the whole topic up. They may want to make a statement, and they may want to do it by changing their attitude and changing their appearance. Now, I want you to see what he doesn't say. Do you see anywhere where he says, make sure they put a shawl over their head? Does he say that? 
He doesn't. Where's the only place Paul talks about wearing a veil? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So Paul is dealing with a situation in Corinth and an attitude that's occurring and is being indicated by a removal of clothing or a putting on of clothing, which is showing a greater problem, which is this authority and submission problem inside the church. But here, Paul's telling Timothy, listen, at your church where you're currently pastoring, there may be some women really drawing attention to themselves because they're throwing off this role of being in submission to authority in the church, and they're really drawing attention to themselves by how they dress. You know, that still happens today, right, in the church. You've been in churches where that's the case. But it still happens today. And, you know, blend this together with what we just saw a little bit ago. Let your dress not only be of, you know, adorning yourself with, with dresses and be- making your hair beautiful. Like, the Bible's not anti-beauty. It's not anti-femininity. Okay, it's not anti-any of those things. It's just there's a statement being made here. So Paul's addressing this with Timothy. He doesn't say anything about wearing a shawl. Is there anything wrong with dressing up? No, nothing. Is there anything wrong with looking beautiful? Absolutely not. God's the one who adorned you like he has, okay? He's the one who gave you uh, Eve to Adam. The problem was not what was going on in the outside by way of fashion. Fashions come and go, and they change all the time. The issue is the attitude Paul's addressing with Timothy. Well, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 11. Here it is. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So why did Paul bring, why did Paul bring this up with Timothy in uh, verse 9? Because there was an attitude adjustment going on inside this church in Eph- Ephesus, and Paul wants to make sure that we address it early on. Here's what you do, Timothy, because this is what's going on. I give you some instruction. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That's what's supposed to be going on in the church, Paul says. Timothy, make sure that you teach these things so they understand these traditions I've handed down to you. And besides, if you want to be contentious, I have no other law, and neither does any other churches. That's how Paul finishes 1 Corinthians 11. And if you want to argue about this, and you think you're a prophet, and you think you're spiritual, recognize that this is the law of Christ that I've just given you. So again, some would say, well, that's just cultural. Well, Paul's making a universal statement here about the submission, not about what the dress looks like, not about what, he just says in general, be uh, modest in your dress. Oh, this is just cultural. Well, look at, verse, look at the next verse, see what? For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That sounds more, like, more than cultural, doesn't it? We're, we're rewinding back pretty far, aren't we? Right to the beginning. Well, why do I have to do that, Paul, if a woman wants to ask that question? Why do I have to be quiet? Why am I not allowed to teach uh, or exercise authority over a man or ask any questions, as we saw earlier inside the church, but ask her husband at home? Why do I have to do that? Well, Adam was first created, and then Eve. There's your first answer. It's not just cultural. The created order tells us this. Verse 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, not just the creation order, but what happened in the fall? It isn't cultural. The fall witnesses of these instructions Paul gives. And then verse 15, but women will be preserved from what? From the stigma of the fall, which you just referred to, preserved from the improperness of exercising authority over a man, preserved from bucking the created order. How? Through bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. How do they... How, do they, uh, pr- how are they preserved? Well, by filling part of the role of a godly woman, which is, as the Lord allows, bearing godly, 
bearing children, raising up another generation of believers, because that's who the they is referring to, okay? Just the bearing of children doesn't do it, but raising godly children, another generation of believers, see? So as we wrap up, Paul gets to this issue in Corinth, and he makes some very important statements, and he knows there's some trouble, because some have come and asked him about it, and some have written about it, and they've looked around. Obviously, the church has not been taken over by a whole feminist movement. Obviously, the church has not been dominated by women. There's something going on there. People are asking questions. Paul, can you clarify this teaching for us? And Paul says, yes, I will. It's not the only place he talked about it. Peter also talked about it. He gave Timothy instructions about it. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about it, so we're going to see it again. But it has to do with conduct inside the church. What is happening? And so they asked Paul, And so he's going to address the head covering issue. Not because that is the issue, which we've seen in the other examples of giving instruction about how to dress. We don't see any any of this, put a cover on your head. We don't see that. Okay? Because that's not the issue. The issue is that that's indicative of the attitude that Paul wants to address. Paul says, I'm going to give you a series of points based on the understanding that the relationship of men and women in marriage and all and in the church is founded on the very same principles and it needs to continue. And so he's going to conclude this section in the same way that he concludes 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the way Peter ends that section of 1 Peter 3.10. Paul's going to say this, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of, of God. What's the practice? Putting a shawl on your head? No. The practice is Authority and submission inside the church. And the key verse is, Christ is over every man, man is over a woman, and God is over Christ. There's authority everywhere. This is how it's supposed to be. And Corinth is just being indicated by a throwing off of some tradition there, some preferences of clothing that indicate what's going on in a hard attitude. But overall, Paul's dealing with the attitude of submission and authority inside the church. And Paul says, if you want to argue about it, you're not arguing with me. This is the revelation of God. It's based on the created order, he says in Timothy. It's based on what happened in the fall. What I'm saying, Paul says, is the commandment of God. It's how he set it all up. There's no inequality. There's no inferiority. It's just the roles that God has given. And Paul gives exact instruction on how it's supposed to play out inside the church. I think we have a, a good firm foundation there, and, and I would encourage you to continue to, t- to, to research this. If you have questions, uh, all the, as I say all the time, please get to me with your questions. There's lots of application here. There's lots of questions that may come up about roles. I'd love to answer those, so contact me. Let me know. We'll, we'll go through them. But continue to study, okay? Beloved, as we go through this, and we'll get into this now next week, Lord willing. And now that we've laid that foundation, we can move through the passage. We can understand what Paul is saying but what, and what he's indicating by the instruction that he's giving them, all right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for even the hard parts, even parts where I will openly admit we don't always understand why this is the case. And when we see uh, the wonderful, talented uh, women that we have in the church, we wonder why these things are here. But you have given us clear instruction, uh, which will follow. And understand that these are for our benefit and for the testimony of the church and because of the angels, and because this is what's taught in all the churches, Paul says. So, Father, help us to understand. Help us, um, even as it it elicits strong emotion, perhaps in a background where uh, we're not used to this type of teaching or have been blessed by teachers who are women, 
exercising authority over men. All that aside, understanding that it's your word that actually in, encourages, it's your word that actually edifies, it's your word that reproves, corrects, instructs, exhorts. Uh, but you have given some instruction about how the church is to function and how it's to occur, what's to occur at home. So Father, I pray that we'll conform to these things because we love you and because we want to be obedient children. And Father, I thank you for, uh, for the rejoicing that we had together in worship, for the time we, gave, we spent in giving, for the prayer time where we really acknowledge that we are completely dependent on you for everything. And Father, I thank you for the unity that that creates. I thank you tonight for a further teaching from Joshua, from John, and that will, as he brings that instruction, again, be encouraged, built up, edified, to understand how you've worked in the past and how you will work in the future. For the ministries that will occur tonight to our children, we thank you for uh, those who are so faithful to teach. And I pray, Lord, that you'll raise up uh, workers for the harvest. We have a, a, a bounty of children, and we're in need of teachers for them. And, Lord, I pray that you'll even impress on the hearts of people now about uh, being a part of that ministry of discipleship to our young ones. Father, thank you today for your son. We look forward to his return. We wish to find, be found as a church that does what your word says, regardless of what, uh, which way the tide flows with our culture. We like to be uh, understanding what you say and then doing what you say and applying that to ourselves in a very uh, clear manner. Lord, bring us to your word tomorrow and throughout the entire week. As we work through your word yearly, Lord, that we may grow in understanding of your grace, of, your, of the knowledge of your son, father of, of of how your Holy Spirit works in our hearts, how you've worked in the past, Lord, and just enrich us as we begin to know your mind. Your Holy Spirit has one will, and as we are in your word, we'll know what that is. We give you praise today. We thank you for the time we could spend, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.